Macworld Podcast, number 49, Special Edition, August 8th, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another special edition of the Macworld Podcast. Today is August the 8th, 2006, and once again, I'm your host, Sarus Faravar. We're going to delve into a post-game show analysis of the Worldwide Developers Conference keynote address that was given yesterday by Apple CEO Steve Jobs, and I'm going to talk with our senior news editor, Jonathan Seff, as well as our editorial director, Jason Snell, to sit down and try and figure out uh, what some of these major announcements that came from Apple uh, yesterday were all about. The two of them headed down to Apple headquarters today and were able to get a preview and much more in-depth understanding at some of the new developments that we'll see in Leopard, as well as uh, some new details on the Mac Pro. So I'm sure all of you are looking forward to uh, hearing about that. So without any further ado, here is our roundtable discussion. All right, I'm here for a roundtable discussion with Macworld Editorial Director Jason Snell. How you doing, Jason? Pretty good, Sarus. And I'm also here with Senior News Editor Jonathan Seff. How's it going, John? Great. Uh, so we're and the table is round. And the table is round in Jason's office, um, also known as our recording studio. So we're here to talk about some of the things that came out of WWDC, uh, which kicked off yesterday. And both Jason and John went down to Apple headquarters in Cupertino to get a better understanding of all of the things that we heard about at WWDC. And I guess the first thing that I would like to talk about is a new application that is going to be standard in OS 10.5 Leopard, and that would be this new great application called Time Machine. I, for one, is someone that's really bad at doing backups, so I can totally see myself using this program a lot when it finally comes out. Um, but it was a sort of a neat demo, but it didn't really explain exactly how the application works and what the technology behind it is. What were you guys able to gather from Apple um, today? Yeah, actually, one of the things that the people at Apple said to us was that they were a little concerned that Time Machine didn't come across quite as cool uh, as as it should have, that some people said, yeah, it's backup, whatever. And... It's interesting. The way Time Machine works is it is basically watching you as you modify files on your system. First thing it does, you turn it on and you point it at a drive, and that can be a drive on an internal. It can be an internal drive on your on your system. It can be an external drive on your system. It can be a drive mounted by a file sharing on a server. Um, but it takes up the whole drive. You you point to it and say, "Use this drive for my backup," and it backs up backs up your whole system, except for unimportant files like cache files and stuff like that that it doesn't need to worry about. And after that, as you make changes to files, you know, every time, just like Spotlight, every time you save a file, copy a file, it knows that you've done something. It keeps track of all of that, and every so often, depending on your usage, um, it makes a backup, sort of. Discreetly in the background, it just sort of says, "Okay, what's changed?" and it makes a new um, it makes a new record of all of those changes. Now, I assume that you can define this interval every day, every week. It sounds like that's not how it works. It sounds like the way it works is it watches your um, your behavior, and then on a regular basis, I think on a matter of minutes or hours, it's making a backup. Um, you're not even noticing that it's happening. It doesn't interrupt you. You know, you keep on working and it just sort of happens in the background. Um, 
And then it sounds like at the end of the day, it, what it does is it, it, it conflates all of the um, different snapshots it's taken during your day and creates a single snapshot that is representative of everything that's changed on your system that day. And every day goes by and you get another one of those at the end of the day. And over time, what you get is a day-by-day history of your system. And um, that's what allows Time Machine to roll back through those uh, through those past days, and then so you know you take the Finder, or you take a dress book, or you take sounds like any app can be written to support it, but especially the file system using the Finder, and you can just roll back through the days until you find a file that was missing. Um, and likewise, if you have a hard drive crash, um, they have some software that basically you uh, you uh, you load up the new drive and it's sort of like the migration assistant except what it's actually doing is it's looking at the drive that your time machine backup is on and it rebuilds your current drive from the that data so it works to retrieve old files and it also works to restore a drive if you lose your drive because of a crash now you mentioned something interesting uh you said that you have to assign a whole drive to time machine yes. so so i have say a macbook with an 80 gig built-in drive, uh, and I have it hooked up to say a 250 gig external to see FireWire drive, it would need literally more than three times that. Well, it sounds like you could you can assign it to a volume. It sounds like I, I, my impression is that that's the case that you could part do a partition. But what you actually will want you will want your backup drive to be. Um, to be bigger than the drive you're backing up, and ideally quite a bit bigger. And that's because it's do- being incremental. It, when you take a file and delete it, it doesn't delete off the backup. That's the whole point, is you can go back and retrieve it. So, you know, if you've got an 80-gig drive, yeah, you, you you might want a 250-gig drive, the whole thing, to use as your backup, because then you're going to be able to roll back much further into the past. Now, they it sounds like it's not all completely set in stone about what happens when your backup drive fills up, but it sounds basically like you um you will you will be prompted for some different options of how you want to handle it, and you can have it be that you specify certain files that are it's not important to keep, or you can have it say, you know, let's cut it off to a certain date. So instead of going back, their example was instead of going back two years, now it's only going to go back a year and a half. And we're going to take that other half a year and we're just going to kind of forget that it happened. And, you know, they, they can't just cast away those six months. They actually need to look at those six months, see what changed in the interim, move the files that haven't changed forward and create a new kind of baseline as the, at, the, at the back of the backup. Now, John, I know you're someone who has multiple computers uh, at your house, and, and you're working on different types of computers. Do you feel like this is something that that people who I mean, do you have an existing backup system in place? Is this something that you think that you would actually use? Uh, I'm somewhat ashamed to say I've only recently adopted a backup system, and um, I do have a G5 tower um, at my house, and that's my primary system. And I purchased a, an external hard drive. And I've been using that to do incremental backups using uh, SuperDuper software. And, um, you know, when I do that, I lose everything from the last time I did it. So if, if there's a file that I overwrote on my computer, by the time it gets onto my backup, it's also been overwritten and I'm, I've lost it. So I can definitely see where having something like this where you can roll back to an earlier time um, where before you threw a file away or before you changed a file would be very useful. Um, you know where where it could come in especially handy is with you know the Mac Pro for example having lots of internal storage you can have a drive dedicated to being a backup drive there 
Um, it's not safe in terms of being external or some or a server somewhere else, but it's still a good way to go in order to back stuff up. So um, I could see it being useful. I think for, for laptop users, it's going to be a little bit different um, because you're not typically going to be plugged into an external, um, you know, backup uh, storage for the for most of the time. But I imagine it could work. Like, for example, I know at my house I have, uh, a de- like you, I, I have a desktop computer uh, and a laptop, and probably you could set it up so that it, it you know, backs up over your wireless network, for example. Yeah, I would assume that you'd be able to do that because it does, as long as you can mount an HFS plus volume, um, then the, the software should be able to write to it. Very cool. Um, so another one of neat features that we saw previewed in uh, the preview version of, of Leopard yesterday at WWDC was this new thing called Spaces, which is something that's been known as virtual desktops in both Unix and Linux environments in the past, but we haven't really had it in macOS any version at all, uh, ever. What did you guys uh, learn about how Spaces works? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the fact that this has existed in other uh, forms before in other platforms. Um, you know, Apple really decided to do it in a different way and to make it a friendly, uh, you know, feature. And, um, you know, they they made it so that you can, you know, you can really just turn your desktop into, you know, one of many. And um, as I told us today, it's not just four. You could actually have more than four. Um, I believe it's up to nine. But the nice thing is it allows you to um, set individual applications that go to a particular space. So let's say that you do, um, you know, some video editing stuff and you want to have Final Cut Pro and you want to have Motion and you want to have, you know, Soundtrack Pro. When you launch those, you want those all to go to the same space. You can tell the system that when I launch those applications, put them in the top left space and all those applications will go there when you launch it. You don't have to recreate this every time. Um, You can drag... Uh, things between spaces. So if you want to move a folder or if you want to move a window from one space to another, you can do that. And they also showed us today that you can have multiple windows from the same application in different spaces. So for example, um, you're looking at a Safari window um, in one space and then you realize that you you want to have uh, a Safari window in another space. You can actually uh, launch your browser and you can Click on the browser, the the window, and then you can use the keyboard shortcut, and you can actually drag it into the uh, another space, and that way you can have things um, in different places. And then if you click the icon in the dock for Safari, for example, it'll first go to the first space that has Safari, and then it'll go to the next one. So it um, it doesn't just bring you to the first one; it'll actually scroll through the uh, different spaces that you have. Now at the keynote address, Steve Jobs sort of just demonstrated it on screen. Did you guys actually get a chance to get your hands on it and try it yourself? Well, our hands were near it. Um, there was actually, uh, since we didn't know the keyboard shortcuts, there was actually a guy from Apple who was hitting the keys, but we got to actually see it running, and, and, and it was interactive, and we could tell him what to do. But yeah, basically, you know, it's got, it's a little like Expose. It's got a keyboard shortcut that will um, give you that bird's-eye view where it sort of pulls back and shows you all the workspaces, which is one of the things that I have a problem with in these 
a lot of these third-party multiple desktop utilities is I, I don't really know what's going on everywhere else. And, and one of the things that they tried to do here was use that expose kind of technology to pull back, show all your virtual desktops at once, all your, all your spaces. And, uh, and then within there, not only can you drag windows back and forth, so you can take your iChat window and drag it from the space in the upper left to the space in the bottom right, but you can also grab spaces themselves and rearrange them. Um, but it's also cool because there's that, this geography, this implicit geography that you've got, um, upper left and top right and middle and what, what have you. Um, and that actually works well because it helps your brain, I think, um, remember where everything is, and in fact, you can use the control key and the arrow keys. You hold down the control key and use your arrow keys, and you can actually just kind of navigate through the spaces. If you do control right arrow, you slide to the space to your right. Control up, you slide up to the next space. So, you know, it, it, it's um, not like they're breaking new ground in the sense of the concept of virtual desktops. They're not. They're absolutely not. But I think Apple has provided a level of user interface sophistication that will make it a much more um, appealing product for regular people who would never think about using virtual desktops and some virtual desktop users who, you know, they got the benefits but the, and they kind of, you know, dealt with the problems with, with those utilities. And with, with Spaces, I think, you know, it's just really slick and I think a lot of people are going to like it. Does Spaces run as a separate application? Is it part of the system preferences? It's like Exposé or Dashboard where it's there's – part of the there, finder. It can be in the dock – but you, but it's really just kind of running in the background. I mean, it's very much like Exposé, where you're really pressing a key to have these things happen. It's not even part of the Finder because every application can be in different spaces. So it's it's you know it, it's just a system layer, very much like Exposé, I think, mm-hmm. with a lot of the same features. Oh, actually, I should say Exposé actually works in spaces. If you're back in that pulled out bird's eye view and you press the Exposé Show All Windows command, all the windows on all the spaces show themselves. It's pretty wild, but it's uh, it's cool. It's really great eye candy, if nothing else. Now, all of this uh, is going to run fantastically on uh, the brand-new, top-of-the-line flagship Mac, the Mac Pro. Uh, and I assume you guys got to hear more about Apple from that? Yeah, we uh, we got to take a look at the Mac Pro, and they opened it up for us and got to look and see how things work. And, you know, it's amazing that when you don't need nine fans and liquid cooling system, what you can do with that space um, the new Mac Pro has four fans instead, no liquid cooling. And with that extra space, they were able to add um, two additional hard drives. So you have four hard drives um, that you can use in there. And they were able to add another optical drive. So you have two full-height optical drives. So you can add another one uh, later. You can get another um, super drive from them, or you can add a Blu-ray drive later when they come down in price. Um, but th- there's a lot of interesting things in there. The, the drives themselves... Um, you actually uh, mount uh, the serial ATA drives on little carriages, carriers, I guess they call them, um, and they slide into place, and there's no cables. They just slide into place, and the back of it, um, the drive connects directly to um, some connectors on the motherboard, and that drive has now been installed, and there's space for four of those, and they use the new faster serial uh, ATA that's uh, 3 gigabits per second. Some people call it serial ATA 2 or SATA 2. Um, but even though you won't get much faster speeds um, because the drives themselves aren't fast enough, um, they point out that if you do a RAID, you can um, have a startup drive and then RAID together the other three drives. And they said they were getting something like 174 megabytes per second um, from those three striped drives. Um, 
there's a lot of other interesting things in there, like the PCI Express bus. Um, they made the graphics slot uh, double high so that if you have a one of the new graphics cards that's um, fancy and takes up a lot of room because there's a lot of stuff on there, it can take up all the room it needs to and it doesn't encroach on the space that the other PCI slots, PCI Express slots would need. So you don't, in fact, lose uh, a slot. So you have one for the graphics and you have three additional ones. Um, but whereas before there was the, this concept of lanes, which, you know, one lane equates to a certain amount of bandwidth, um, there's still a total number of lanes that the system, the PCI Express bus can handle. But when you insert a PCI Express card, you can actually decide how much bandwidth that card gets. So you can sort of reallocate the, um, the bandwidth that the system has for that um, based on your needs. So if you have a uh, video capture card, that's going to need a lot more bandwidth than, say, an Ethernet card would. So you can actually tell the system that you want to give eight lanes worth of bandwidth to one and only one lane of bandwidth to the other, which is a really interesting concept. And you um, can define that in software, I assume? Yeah. Yeah, when it, when you start up after you've installed the card, a little user interface widget comes up and says you've installed a new card how do you want to assign the bandwidth for these for these cards? And and you know, it used to be that you'd have like this is the super fast slot, and then there are a couple medium speed slots, and then there's a slower slot, and you had to kind of figure out which slots you were going to use. And now with the Mac Pro, you actually don't need to do that. You you um you can configure the speed of all the slots independently of one another up to up to the maximum. But um and that's all done through software when you when you launch uh, the system for the first time after you've inserted a card. That's pretty nice. Did they talk about uh, the decision or any differences in the new front I.O. ports? Yeah, they mentioned the fact that, um, you know, they, they actually did point it out specifically to show that they had added a, another USB 2.0 port to the front, and they had also brought a FireWire 800 port to the front, um, which was a very requested feature to have more ports in front there. Um, and then with the back, they actually redesigned the ports as well. They they move them to sort of the lower right corner in a nice, um, nicer configuration. And the power supply has been moved to the top of the system, which makes it easier to access. And one thing you'll notice if you look at the back of the Mac Pro versus a G5 is that um, the Mac Pro has a single vent for the fans, uh, for the air to blow, whereas the Power Mac G5 had two. Um, so they, there's a lot of stuff that they, you know, took out in terms of fans in order to... Um, because they didn't need them anymore. And they, they weren't able to give us specific numbers about the, the noise on the new system. I was going to say, does it sound quieter to you? For, uh, from being in the room, uh, the one we looked at was turned off because uh, they opened it up, but the other one that was running um, seemed pretty quiet. Um, and it, it, as they said, the, they said the dynamic range for the fans is actually fairly uh, a narrow range so that you're not going to get the cycling up of the fans like you used to before where they would start blowing full blast and they would make a lot of noise. So um, the, you know, th- there's a lot of things that um, don't require the, the Xeon chips run a lot cooler. Um, they fit in the same space as one of the um, dual core chips from the old uh, quad G5. And even the RAM in the new system has its own heat sinks on it. Um, these, the new Mac pro is the first Mac to use um, fully buffered dims. And um, one of the, you know, 
one of the ways that Apple helps reduce heat and keep the fans from blowing is that the dims themselves actually have a heat sink on them, um, which helps dissipate the heat. Hmm. Yeah, one of the interesting things about those the the FB dims, as they're called, is that uh, I know I've I've heard people say, "Wow, well, why are they putting heat sinks on on memory modules?" But the FB dims are actually smarter than your average memory module. They actually have um, a custom uh, an ASIC on them um, that does that does um, memory distribution. It's basically like a traffic cop, and each one of them has its own, and they all. Uh, communicate with the the memory controller and help route the memory in an efficient way. And so, when you've got a, a processor like that on board these things, uh, it's definitely going to throw off more heat. And so they said that they they came up with this um, thermal spec for their RAM. And um, and what we'll see is that third party RAM manufacturers will now start making RAM to that thermal specification. It's only a matter of time. Which means that right now the best place to buy RAM for a Mac Pro is directly from Apple. But over time, everybody else is going to have this stuff too. And, and they might look different because different manufacturers can implement the thermal specification in different ways. But the end result is going to be that they're going to have a heat sink on them and that they're going to dissipate heat in a certain way. And they, a- Apple said, you know, one of the reasons they really cared about that was that they didn't want to have to put them in a wind tunnel in order to keep them cool. And uh, and hopefully the end result will be that the Mac Pro is not only quieter than the G5, but doesn't have that change in volume that the G5 can have. Yeah, well, I'm sure we're all anxious to have, especially uh, Jim Galbraith, our lab director, is anxious to get his hands on on one of these things. Absolutely, and test them out. Um, just as a as a quick final thing, uh, looking forward uh, to upcoming Apple events. Obviously, MacWorld Expo 2007 is coming up in a few months. Now that the Intel line has been complete and all of the Macs have been transitioned to Intel, do you think we're going to see maybe some new case design for in the future? Now that because all of all of the ones have basically have stayed in the same same Mac Mini, the iMac, and so forth. Yeah, I mean the the MacBook is a little bit different, um, but but otherwise, yeah, I think. I think uh, Apple decided when they were making this chip transition that the last thing that they wanted to do was have to make a visual transition for all these systems, design a whole new enclosure with a whole new look, get people used to that while they were also getting used to Intel. I, I don't know whether it was something that they decided or not, but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. If people are going to be a little hesitant about this Intel thing, what is going to be more comfortable than keeping the systems the way they used to look? So, you know, if you buy a Mac Pro, it it's a G5. I mean, it looks the same. And even though what's inside is radically different from the outside, you know, it's comfort. It's comforting. It's the same look we've had for three years. I, I think we are going to see a, a, a bunch of new designs happen, but they can happen on their own time frame now. Um, now that Apple's done this transition, I think, yeah, we'll start to see some changes. But, um, you know, it, it's been, I think, a smart thing for them to kind of keep it, hold the design steady while they're going through this whole chip transition. I think Jason uh, has a good point there. I mean, you know, the the fact that, especially with the Mac Pro, the fact that they are able to do so much more um, with so much less space means that it is possible that Apple could do, you know, say a mini tower design for a Mac Pro, where it, you know, something that had one optical drive, space for two hard drives, space for, you know, a single slot graphics card, and maybe one additional. Um, expansion slot for PCI Express, um, you know, 
whether something like that would actually be feasible or even smart is a is a different question because you know if it's somewhere between a, an iMac and and the real Mac Pro or the bigger Mac Pro, does it cannibalize your sales? And is there really any reason to produce something like that? But the fact that they've switched over to Intel chips gives them a lot more flexibility in terms of you know the thermal design uh, of a computer because they have more room to work with. They need less cooling, and they can play around with more stuff. So you know I wouldn't be surprised that. In January, perhaps at MacWorld Expo, to see some new, uh, maybe even radically new um, designs for some of the computers to go along with the new brains that are inside of them. All right. Well, I think that that should do it for uh, our WWDC uh, roundtable. And I appreciate both of you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks. We'll talk to you again soon. Well, that pretty much wraps up our podcast coverage for WWDC. Uh, This has been almost the 50th podcast that we've reached now. And uh, we appreciate your taking the time to listen to to the show. I wanted to, again, remind everyone to check out all of our coverage available at Macworld.com, as well as the rest of the online family of Macworld-affiliated websites, which include PlaylistMag.com, MacOS10Hints.com, MacUser.com, and our brand new gadget blog, Macworld Gadget Box, which is available at gadgets.macworld.com. Again, you can send me email comments uh, through traditional email. My email address is cfaravar at macworld.com, and as well as audio comments. I would love to hear from all of you out there uh, by audio. And of course, there's regular comments down at the bottom of the show notes that you can leave in our forums as well. Also, I wanted to remind everyone to go to Macworld.com and check out our video excerpts from the WWDC keynote address. It is hosted by yours truly. And I wanted also everyone to email me and let me know what you think. It's a new thing that we're doing here at Macworld to provide a little bit of video content for you. And so you can go and check that out. Hope to hear from all of you guys again soon. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast.